The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. First met Gil in uh, the March retreat at Spirit Rock in 2004. I've been meditating for almost 40 years now, and I spent a long period of time as a lawyer in Charleston, South Carolina, actually a criminal defense lawyer and a politician of sorts. And then I spent a good deal of time at Kripalu Yoga Center, where I was a teacher and became general counsel when they had a large disturbance caused by bad conduct of guru, something that seems to happen in spiritual centers from time to time. Uh, I then transformed myself and directed several mediation and conflict resolution organizations and met a woman who's a mediator in Sausalito at a conference for mediators interested in, in contemplative spiritual practices. And her name is Dana Curtis and we got married two years ago, two and a half years ago. I now work at the Federal District Court in San Francisco where I mediate all sorts of cases, train mediators, and live on a floating home in Sausalito. Uh, I also do a lot of volunteer work at Spirit Rock. There was recently a upset around their retreat staff that some of you may have heard of and I chaired a review panel that looked into that and I facilitate staff meetings and teachers council meetings from time to time. And I've spoken here at IMC five or six or seven times, but never on Sunday morning. When I used to try cases, speaking to a jury, there was the clear and always present focus of attempting to persuade. As I matured as a lawyer and got more skilled as a trial lawyer, I realized that what was more skillful was connecting. And so I focused on connecting with the jury. And then as I got more skillful, I learned that every story, every event in our life, every circumstance in our life has a theme. And that if I could listen, instead of persuade, and instead of focus entirely on trying to connect, if I could learn to listen to life, if I could listen to what was happening around me, I could discern and understand that theme, and I could steer my trial lawyering by that theme. <coughs> Over the years, I've discovered that that is the most powerful way for us to live our lives. Mostly, we live our lives circumstantially driven. An event happens, and we respond to that event in some way sometimes skillfully, sometimes not skillfully. We are driven by the circumstances of our lives. 
our job changes, our relationships change, our health changes, and we react to and respond to those events. That's sort of the normal way of living life. Learning to listen for a theme and discern a theme and steer by that theme is much more powerful. In about beginning in about 2000, my life began to fall apart in all sorts of ways, beginning with the death of my father, who was a Southern Baptist minister. I'm from Pickens County, South Carolina, and come from about eight or nine generations of Southern Baptist preacher. You may hear a little bit of that this morning, <laughs> especially since I'm sitting in a church. <laughs> it will just arise. My father passed away. My wife of 20-some years and I went through a very difficult separation. My mother became extremely ill. I was guiding a large national, international conflict resolution organization through a merger with four other organizations, and they decided to merge me out. I've got my dream job running the conflict resolution program at Duke Law School and discovered that my friends who had brought me there and recruited me were having a clandestine affair and had taken all the money from the program and there was no money left. And so I decided uh, to listen for the theme. <laughs> and I at that time had spent years at Kripalu teaching relationships and traveling around North America teaching relationships. And so I considered myself an expert in relationships. And I noticed that friends had shafted me in a job, that my wife and I had broken up our long-term relationship, that in my previous job, my colleagues had not agreed with the direction that I saw for the organization. So I realized that the theme to listen for was relationship. I was invited to go speak at a conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan on mediation and mindfulness, and I just couldn't go. I was a wreck. I couldn't get outside my house. I was deeply depressed and not sleeping and struggling. And a friend called me and said, I want you to come to this conference. And I said, I can't do it, Lynn. I just can't do it. I'm not fit for prime time. And he continued to persuade, and then eventually one day, in the mail comes a plane ticket. So I figure, well, okay. And I get on the plane, and I'm flying to Chicago, and then from Chicago to Kalamazoo. And I'm sitting on the plane, deep in despair. And I notice that virtually everybody on this small little commuter plane from Chicago to Kalamazoo, Michigan, is probably going to this conference. And I see the back of a woman's head. And I hear not the words she's saying, but the sound of her voice. And I'm deeply touched in my heart and start to cry. And when we get off the plane, I meet this woman. 
And she's now my wife. I came from the East to California with no job, uncertainty about my relationship with Dana, but following that theme. And I can say that I have never been as happy. In the Katuna Sutra, or the Gratitude Sutra, the Buddha taught, Monks, I will teach you the level of a person of no integrity and the level of a person of integrity. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, Lord, the monks responded. The Blessed One said, Now, what is the level of a person of no integrity? A person of no integrity is ungrateful, doesn't acknowledge the help given to her. Doesn't really say her, but it's uncomfortable for me. This ingratitude, this lack of acknowledgement is second nature among rude people. It is entirely on the level of a person of no integrity. A person of integrity is grateful and acknowledges the help given to her. This gratitude, this acknowledgement, is second nature among fine people. It is entirely on the level of a person of integrity. I figured since it was Sunday after Thanksgiving, I should talk about gratitude. And I should really talk about gratitude because it's something that I have a great deal of difficulty with. I have had. I will say that in the past tense. Because I took it on to develop myself in. I am one of those people who sees the glass maybe half full. Probably a little bit less than half full. That's my thrown way of being. I was just home in South Carolina visiting my mom and my daughter, Jessica. Jessica has a rare eye disease called uveitis, and she is now blind in one eye. And Jessica says, I still have one good eye. She sees the glass not only half full, she sees it full. She sees it overflowing. And she has taught me a great deal about gratitude. Perhaps you're one of those people like Jessica, or you're one of those people like me, who just can't quite see the wonder and beauty of life. Scientists have stud who've studied our brain ha believe that we have, as human beings, a built-in negativity bias. We've spent our evolutionary history dodging sticks and chasing carrots. And if we miss a few carrots, we can always struggle along and be hungry for a while and perhaps find another one. But if we fail to dodge a stick, some attack by a predator or another human being or a natural disaster, we're out of the gene pool pretty quickly. So over the centuries, as human beings, we have developed this negativity bias. As a mediator, I see it all the time in conflict. People Many people avoid conflict like the plague, even though avoiding it doesn't work out very well. 
that negativity bias causes us to avoid conflict because as human beings, we will work much harder to avoid losing $100 than we will work to gain $100. People who've studied relationships say that it takes five positive relationship interactions to make up for one negative relationship interaction. If you are married or have a significant other or a partner, go home for the next few days and count and measure how many positive interactions you have versus how many negative interactions you have. If you can't maintain a five to one ratio, according to social scientists, the chance of your relationship surviving are slim. Why? We remember negative events much more easily and strongly than we do positive events. It's the way our brains are wired. So what do we do? I want to talk this morning about the quality of gratefulness, what blocks us from experiencing it, especially in troubled times like these that we're experiencing, what supports us in developing it, and how we can develop gratitude. Albert Einstein said there are two ways that we can experience life. One is though nothing as a miracle is a miracle, and the other way is that everything is a miracle. And this exactly posits the conundrum that we have in dealing with gratitude. The Buddha, as you know, taught us repeatedly that we should know not through beliefs, but through our direct experience. He continually admonishes in the suttas, don't take me at my word, try it out yourself and see if it works, and then accept it. So like that, let's do the same with gratitude. So sit up in your best meditative posture and close your eyes. And take a nice deep breath, roll your shoulders and settle in and let go of whatever has been stirred up by what I've said so far or if you've been off outside the hall in some memory of your own, come back and call to mind someone, something for which you are grateful right now. It might be a relative, a friend, your work, a pet, nature, being here this morning, a favorite teacher, music, art, your health, something, someone, some event for which you are grateful. And now call that experience up, bring your mindfulness to focus on it in as vivid a detail as possible. If it's a person, call her or him to mind. The look the clothes that he or she is wearing, the smile, 
the way her eyes look at you, the way his hand touches your shoulder. If it's an event, the place of that event, what you're wearing, the time of day, the geography, make it as vivid as possible. And bringing your mindful focus now to this person, event, or thing for which you are grateful. Notice what arises in your body. Notice your breathing. Notice any tension. What arises in your heart? Is your heart open? Is there fear in your heart, loss, happiness? What's in your heart? And in your mind, what mind state is called forth by this memory of gratitude? And allow yourself to open fully to the gifts of this experience. Accept and appreciate. And notice any barriers to acceptance and appreciation. Recognize and acknowledge any benefactor or giver of this event. And gradually open your eyes. So, just call out a word. What are the distinctions? What are the qualities of gratitude? What was the experience of gratitude like? What leaped up to you from that experience of gratitude? Just a word or a phrase. Joy. Joy. Heartwarming. Heartwarming. Spaciousness. Spaciousness. Fullness. Love. Love. Compassion. Warmth. Warmth. Wonder. Responsibility. Responsibility. Energy. Security. Security. Light. I don't know if you've ever heard of the teacher, Brother David Stindelrost. He's uh, a Benedictine monk in the Thomas Merton tradition, an extraordinary man. If I've ever met in my life an enlightened being, it's Brother David. He has written and taught extensively on gratitude and gratefulness. And he distinguishes four qualities of gratefulness, all of which you have covered. Calmness, connectedness, upliftedness, and fullness.
CCUF, C-C-U-F, calmness, connectedness, upliftedness, and fullness. Now, why look at the fine distinctions of gratitude? Because especially for someone like myself who has difficulty with gratitude, it helps to know something in its detail. It helps to study something with a focus and a depth to appreciate the fine distinctions as if you were looking at a work of art or listening to a piece of music or observing some craft or furniture or nature, a scene, to see the, the light and the energy and the calmness that we feel when we're in a place of gratitude, the connection we feel with the giver and with ourselves, the uplifted, spacious, warm, loving energy that gratitude calls forth, and the fullness that we feel, the deep satisfaction and nourishment. We are full in the space of gratitude. Generating any of those four will cause us to call forth gratitude and appreciate it so that gratefulness can arise. I remember one earlier time when my life was coming apart. My law partner was a state senator in South Carolina, and South Carolina has some really weird politics. You've probably heard about our um, governor, governor who's... Uh, Heart belongs in Argentina. <laughs> I met him once at a dinner, sat beside him, and he's definitely one of the dumbest people I've ever <laughs> experienced. But my law partner was definitely not dumb. He was a very smart guy, but his integrity was a little off, and we had a great deal of trouble and I was on the edge of bankruptcy as a young lawyer. It was right after I had been public defender, and I came home one night. My little Jessica was about two, and she had just gone to bed, and I was sorry that I had been late and not had dinner with her and not played with her, and I sat beside her in the bed, and I explained to her how sorry I was that I had been working so much and not seen her very much and said something about the difficulties I was dealing with. And she suddenly popped up from the pillow, looked me dead straight in the eye and said, quit acting like a baby and be happy. And <laughs> flopped right back on the pillow and was gone, asleep. And I realized in that moment that she had a great deal to teach me about gratitude. And indeed, she did teach me and continues to teach me. Gratefulness is actually arises from every opportunity in life. Every event in life is an opportunity to open our hearts to gratefulness an opportunity to open our hearts to gratefulness. O-O-P. Oop. Oop. Every event is an oop. We can accept that gift 
and open our hearts through that opportunity. Now, how do we do that? It is so challenging for some of us. What blocks us from it? Well, the three things that the Buddha continually teaches are the source of all unwholesome conduct, greed, hatred, and delusion, or desire, aversion, and ignorance. Those are also the three Buddhist psychological types. And each of us has a propensity in one of those directions. My Jessica is obviously uh, a greedy type. She sees life in its fullness, and she wants it, and she goes for it in an open way. I happen to be an aversive type. I go into a room, and I see what's wrong. And I speak to someone, and I notice that, uh, what I don't like about them. That's what I'm thrown to, which makes gratitude a challenge for me. Some of us say yes, yes to life, the greedy types. Some of us say no, no, like me, the aversive types. And some of us say, huh? Those are the deluded types. <clears throat> so you can put yourself in one of those categories and begin to see how you relate to life, what your throne way of being is, so that you can see how that relates to your openness to gratitude, to the calmness, the connectedness, the upliftedness, and the fullness that Brother David speaks about. One night, a year or two after, she must have been three or four by this time, and I came home for dinner, and we lived out on a little island off the coast of South Carolina called Sullivan's Island, and had a beautiful house on the marsh with a big screened-in porch and ceiling fans, and very southern, and you got to know how to sweat in South Carolina, or you can't deal with the humidity. And I again came home late, and I was really hungry, and I tend to get a little hypoglycemic, and you know, I just don't want to be around me in that situation. And we're sitting around a nice big round table, and Jessica announces that she would like to say a blessing. And I say, okay. And she says, everybody fold their hands and bow their heads. And we did. And she said, you don't have it right. And she began to correct each one of us. There was something about the way we had our hands or our head wasn't bowed the right way or something. And this went on for some time. And my aversion began to arise. <laughs> and I began to get right on the edge of some angry outburst, which would have been typical of me at that time. And she looked around with this very, very beatific smile on her face and said, you may now all get off it. <laughs> There's a wonderful Irish poet named Galway Kennel. And he wrote a poem called St. Francis in the Sow. This is a part of it. The bud stands for all things, even for those that don't flower like me at that time. Or everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary 
to reteach a thing its loveliness. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers from within of self-blessing. That's what she did for me. She retaught me my loveliness over many years. We can do that for one another, but only in a space of gratitude. And we definitely must, of course, do it for ourselves. That's most important. So, what supports us in developing gratitude? Six things that I've discovered. One, of course, is our mindfulness practice and our ability to sharpen our noting of what is arising. The unskillful, ungrateful, aversive, reactive thoughts that arise. To note those in a sharper and sharper way. And to investigate what's underneath it. In that time that I described when I had my dream job at Duke and I discovered that my friends had, uh, were having a secret affair and had taken all the money and run, etc., I was working hard to clarify what was up for me. What was the theme? And in my noting and in my mindfulness, I heard and saw how I had failed to be present in relationships. I had failed to be mindful. I had failed to be grateful to myself and to my wife and my family and my friends and pay attention. And I kept wondering, what was underneath that? And one day on a walk, I heard myself saying, life just doesn't come to me. And I was stunned. Because I know intellectually that life is here for all of us. But I was holding myself as someone that life was continually pulling the rug out from under. That that was who I was. So I saw that my work was to turn that deep belief. We all have experiences in our past and in our childhood especially before we began to try to wake up and pay attention and be mindful. And those experiences generated beliefs about who we are and what we are capable of. And most fundamentally, they generate beliefs about our relationship to life and to others. They're buried there. They're like landmines that we step on. And when we step on them, things explode around us. Mindfulness, noting, and investigation allows us to carefully walk through those minefields and reveal to ourselves the belief 
that we have, that unskillful belief, so that in my case, I could take life doesn't come to me and turn it to life comes to me. That's listening to life. Because as I listen to life, that's number three, listening to life. So mindfulness and the noting that goes with it, investigating what we hear and see in our practice, and then starting to listen to life. We call forth life through our listening. And if my listening is life doesn't come to me, guess what I see? If my listening is life comes to me, I will see the same events in an entirely different perspective. And I will begin to retrain my mind, and I have retrained my mind. If you ever want to get a good parking place, ride with me, because life comes to me, and so do parking places. And then there's the time of number four, wise reflection. And what do I mean by wise reflection? We are extraordinarily impatient with ourselves. We struggle to teach ourselves our loveliness because we just don't do it, damn it, fast enough. What the hell's the matter with you that you can't get it? Right? Like me, do you say that to yourself? We are in development, folks. Can you allow yourself to be in development? And as best as I can tell, development, if this is development, this up axis, and this is time, this horizontal axis, development does not go like that in a straight line over time higher and higher development, higher and higher awakening. It doesn't go that way. It goes up here a little bit, then maybe a plateau for a while, and then boom, (laughs) back down in the trough. And then maybe I have some insight and I shoot way up again, and I have another trough for a while, and then bam, I hit a brick wall and I'm down again. That's the way it looks. That's the way it's always looked for me. That's the way it looks in life being patient through wise reflection and allowing ourselves to be in development. And number five, listening for that theme, that connecting underlying theme. What is up in your life? If you're struggling and resisting being grateful, what's the theme that's driving you? Listen for it. It will come to you from every direction. It will come to you in nature. It will come to you in a chance encounter in a store when you're just speaking with someone. But of course, we have to be mindful and pay attention. We have to investigate and look deeply at what's going on. We have to listen to life. We have to allow ourselves to be in development in order to listen and hear that underlying theme. So, what will help to develop gratitude? Four practices. Number one is generosity. 
There's a wonderful story in a book that uh, Jack Kornfell wrote on forgiveness, a small little book that I highly recommend to you, of a woman whose son was killed in a drive-by shooting in Washington, D.C. He was a teenager, and she went to the trial of the young boy who was accused of the murder, and he was convicted as a juvenile. And she stood up at the end of the trial and yelled across the courtroom, I'm going to kill you. And the young boy went away to the juvenile detention. He was only 14 or 15. And she began, after several months, to visit him. And she visited him every few weeks for the many years he was in the juvenile detention home. And she began to take him gifts and, you know, small amounts of money so that he could buy things in the store, etc. And when it came time for him to be released from the juvenile home, she said, do you have a place to live or a job or anything, anywhere to go? And he said, no, I've been on the streets when I before I got into jail and into trouble, I've been on the streets. I have no family and no place to go. And the next time she came back to visit him, she said, a man in my church has agreed to give you a job, and if you want, you can stay at my house. And the boy agreed, and he came to live with her, and he worked at the job that she had found for him. And months passed in this situation, and one night... She asked him after supper to come and sit with her in the living room. And he did. And she said, do you remember after your trial when I stood up and said, I'm going to kill you? And he said, yes, I did. It's been hard for me and it was scary for me when you came to visit and for me to come here. But I had no option. And she said, well, I have. You are no longer who you were then. You have changed, and I have changed. And if you want, I would like you to be my son and live in, continue to live in his room. That is, of course, extraordinary generosity. Hopefully none of us will be challenged in life in that way to have to rise to that level of generosity. But we all have moments when we can be generous in our lives and that will enable us to expand our access to gratitude. There's a practice in Japanese Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, called Nikan, bowing, deep gratitude. It's my favorite Zen story. A young fisherwoman got pregnant and she didn't want to tell the people in the small village, the true father, because it was the husband of one of the women in the small village. So she said that the Zen monk up on the top of the mountain had impregnated her. When the child was born, the uh, village was outraged. They were very poor, and another mouth to feed was just something they couldn't handle. So en masse, they walked up to the mountain, rang the bell on the temple gates, accused the Zen monk of impregnating this young woman and said, here's the baby, you care for him. And the monk said, 
also. Twelve years went by. The young woman has gotten quite ill and she's dying. And she doesn't want to die with this lie on her conscience. So she admits who the father was and it wasn't the Zen monk and she dies. Thereafter, the village goes up en masse and explains to the priest what had happened. And when he comes to the gate this time, he's standing beside a fine-looking 12-year-old boy. And he said, the village said, we'll take him now. And his response was, "Aso." I aspire to that. I'm a long ways from it, but I aspire to that. That story inspires me. If we can bow to whatever life gives us, then life comes to us. And it comes to us in many forms. But each form is an oop, an opportunity for us to open our heart to gratitude. Each moment, we can do that. Third, practice your metta meditation. I know that it's taught quite a bit down here at IMC. That practice... Two years ago, I devoted a whole year of my practice to metta. That's all I did. It was wonderful. I intend to do that in 2010. Again, every set, all my practice in metta. That totally has transformed my relationship with gratitude. And finally, notice that everything in life is a paradox. We deeply resist the reality of life. Pain and pleasure go together. They are inseparable, just like light and dark are inseparable. We cannot have half of life and resist the other. That's what makes us neurotic and psychotic. We must learn that life comes with both and, not either or. When I can accept and say, when I was caught in my belief system, life doesn't come to me, it's because I discovered that I was living in either or. Life had to look a certain way before I could open to it in gratitude. So I was stuck and it appeared that life did not come to me. When I began to transform my mind around that so that I can now say life comes to me, it's because I know that life comes to me this way, with pain and pleasure. Everything in life has an opposite. Everything. There is nothing you can think of that doesn't. It is crazy, nuts, psychotic, weird. Every adjective I can use to expect that life will come just the way with pleasure and no pain. The Buddha taught that deeply. Opening to the paradox of life. So, four practices to help us develop gratitude. One, generosity. Two, aso. 
Nikan. In order to develop our ability to do aso, practice metta. And the focus of all of them is opening to the paradox of life. This is by Billy Collins, one of my favorite poets. He is, was poet laureate of the U.S. for a while. It's called Aimless Love. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap, and one hand on the wheel, no lust, no slam of the door, the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, waiting, ready for the next arrow. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of wood leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. May we all be grateful.